This morning we're looking at a pivotal passage from Paul's letter to the church in Rome that focuses on the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's something we don't talk about all that often and, and something we should. Now, a lot of people would consider Romans to be Paul's most important work. It's where he talks about what he means when he refers to the word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And if it's not his most important work, at the very least, it's his most well-studied. In the fourth century, Augustine converted to Christianity after reading through Romans and wrestling with Paul and what Paul wrote. In the 16th century, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk before launching the Reformation, he was haunted by, by a phrase that Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, and that phrase is the righteousness of God. Uh, Luther wrote that, that this passage, this passage of Paul became to him a gateway to heaven. John Calvin, another reformer, referred to it as the most hidden treasure of Scripture. It's a book that is both challenging and encouraging. And if you haven't taken time to read through it from start to finish, it is something that I would I would definitely recommend. It's, it's shaped the faith of people for generations. The first five chapters of Romans, they lay out what God does for us. So, so in Paul's mind, he, he, he talks about how sin separates humankind from God and the gospel message, the good news really is, is that we are justified, redeemed or atoned for because of what God did for us in the person of Jesus. Chapters six through eight are, are all about what God does in us because of that good news. It's, it's how we experience God on a daily basis. And the rest of Romans is what we do with the gospel. It answers the questions around what sort of tangible change should we go through, should we experience as we follow Jesus. And right, right after chapter 8, right at the end of chapter 8, I should say, as Paul moves from what God is doing in us through the gospel to, to how we respond to the gospel is this section on the Holy Spirit. So in the, the first part of, of Romans 8, there's this contrast between flesh and spirit. And Paul calls followers of Christ to set their minds on spiritual things because they bring life, they bring peace. And, and just a, a real quick point of clarification. When, when Paul uses the word flesh over and over again in Romans 8, he's not implying that all physical things are bad. Or, or that all spiritual things aren't physical. The word that we translate as flesh re refers to, to people or things that, that share the corruptibility and, and mortality of the world. It, it carries a sense of rebellion against God. And our obligation, as Paul writes in, in, in verse 13, is to live according to the Spirit, not to the flesh. Then starting... In verse 14, we read this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption. It brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now, 
If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple months after my son was born, I, I called a friend of mine. Uh, th- this friend is also a pastor, and, and he and his wife have, have four kids of their own. And I was struggling to find a rhythm, to find balance having two kids and a spouse and in a congregation. And he had four kids. So he had to have some words of wisdom. At least, at least that's what I, I, I was thinking. And so I called him and I said, how are you and your wife functioning? This has got to be hard. And he said, I, I'm not sure if you can call what we do functioning. My friend's family story is absolutely incredible. They had one child and then, while in the process of adopting a second, got pregnant with another. And then, with, with the three kids already all fairly close in age, they began sensing that, that God just wasn't done with their family yet. And while they were sensing this, they got a call from the birth mother of their adopted child, and it was the call was saying that, that she was pregnant again. They, they grew from being a family of, of three to four to six over just a, a couple of years. Every time I read this part of Romans, where Paul writes about being adopted sons and, and daughters, I can't help but think about my friend's family story. Now, adoption, adoption wasn't something that was practiced all that much in the Hebrew world. But it was fairly common in Roman culture. And as Roman citizens, both Paul and those who were reading his letter, they would have seen the power behind this metaphor. In Rome, adoption typically happened when a wealthy man didn't have a son. And during that time, only males could legally be an heir, which is why he uses sticks to the, the language of sonship. So when looking for an adopted heir, age wasn't really an issue at all. So a, a couple might look for a, a young boy or even a teenager, but they could also look for an adult. And as soon as an adoption occurred, uh, there were four steps that were taken between the new father and the son. First, old debts were paid, which included any type of outstanding payments, fees, or or dues, but also any sort of legal obligations. Secondly, a new name was given to the son. He instantly inherited all that his new dad owed. Thirdly, the the new father immediately assumed liability for the son's actions. So not only were, were the former debts paid, but anything new that happened to that son eventually got back to the father. And, and the, new, the new son had an obligation to, to honor his father as well. So being adopted, it was seen as this, this great privilege, but it also carried a lot of responsibility. You were given a gift, and along with that gift, you were given all the joy, the pain, and the baggage, really, that comes with, with being a part of a family. So in the verses that we read Paul discusses four privileges that come with adoption. They really define what it means to be adopted as one of God's children. First, he says that the spirit of adoption invites us to find a sense of security. 
Paul contrasts being children of God and slaves living in fear. So in the first century Roman culture, a slave or a servant would usually obey their master because if they didn't, if they didn't obey their master, they would get in trouble, they would get punished, or in some cases they might even lose their job. But the relationship between a parent and a child was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be different. I'll never forget something that happened when my, my oldest daughter, uh, about five years or so ago, it, it was bedtime and, and she wanted attention and was crying while we were trying to put her younger baby brother to sleep. I, I snapped. I, I yelled. Not something I'm proud of. And, and she got really quiet. Later, when I went to lay with her in bed, I, she said to me, Daddy, Daddy, when I'm crying, please don't yell. Ouch. Instead of yelling, I should have walked into her room and, and given her a hug. She just wanted to be secure. She just wanted security. A child shouldn't have to live in constant fear that they're letting their parent down, or even worse, that their relationship depends on their actions. So Paul writes that if we or if we're led by God's Spirit, we don't need to worry. It's why he starts chapter 8 with saying there is absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Next, the spirit of adoption gives, gives us authority. In the typical Roman house, a slave had to do what they were told. But because of the name a child had been given, they had, had been given authority under their parents. This is really what's behind Paul, or be, excuse me, behind Jesus' conversation with his, with his disciples in the Gospel of John. And the, the place where, where Jesus says, very truly, very truly I tell you, whomever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' first followers, to, to hear him say that? They had walked with him. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him bring people back to life. And here he's telling them that they would do even greater works than he did. This, this authority should give us a certain type of confidence. And by confidence, I don't mean permission to be arrogant or, or an entitlement to walk around pointing at one another's sins and, and flaws. It's a sort of confidence that assures us that we belong to a family where, regardless of what is happening around us, God is ultimately in control. So, so we can rest in that truth. We, we don't have to live in fear. And along with that, that, that assurance comes an intimacy. Paul writes that as we receive our adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word, and it's best translated really as, as Daddy. It's, it's the word that Jesus cries out while in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Now, I, I can't really say with certainty, but my guess is that most of us in the 20th and, and 21st century, we didn't really grow up addressing our parents with, with a formal title. My, my guess is that most of us didn't call 
our mom and dad, father or mother, directly to their face. Hopefully whatever term we used was it was more than a, a title that just defined the relationship. Hopefully it conveyed a, a degree of trust, a, a type of tenderness, a familiarity. These words are a reminder that we can approach the creator of the universe with a sort of intimacy. Knowing that God isn't just some, some kind of distant or far off being. Or, or, or someone that we just kind of believe in in theory or academically. One of my, my favorite things in the entire world is when one of, of, of our kids, seemingly out of the blue, runs up to me and wraps their arms around me and shouts, Dad or Dad, Daddy. It's totally spontaneous, and it has the ability to make me forget about anything else that happened in that day or any other problem that might, might, might be going on just for a moment. So when we cry out, Abba, we're letting down our guard. We're not worrying about having the right words to pray. We're not thinking about how much of the Bible we know or don't know. We're simply recognizing that we're with our parents. And that we're accepted just because we are that parent's child. No strings attached. Being adopted as God's children means that that we've been given a sense of security. That we walk through this world with our Father's authority. That we're invited into an intimate relationship. And lastly, that we are promised an inheritance. Paul writes, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Members of the church in Rome who are familiar with the story of the Israelite people, they might understand the concept of inheritance a little differently than those who, who only really understood adoption. They would have known that the promised land was to be Israel's inheritance, and that the Israelites were, were, were God's living legacy on earth. Now, at this point, through adoption, that legacy was extended to the church in Rome, and then to us today. In his first epistle, Peter says that God's children share an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, One that does not fade away. And here, Paul goes one step further. We've become co-heirs with Christ, sharing in his suffering so that we may share in his glory. Think about that for a moment. Paul is saying that we don't just sit passively and observe God's glory in Christ. We share it. We share it. When my friend, who I mentioned earlier, describes his family, he doesn't say, I have two kids that are adopted and two kids of my own, or anything close to that. He says that he has four kids, and each of them equally share in what it means to be a part of a big, crazy, fun, adventurous family. When my kids were younger, maybe a Uh, only a few months old, before each of them reached an age where they were falling asleep on their own. I I loved walking around the neighborhood or or on the beach and having them them fall asleep with me. 
each of them, they, they, they sort of followed the same, same type of pattern. It would go from being wide awake, with their eyes wide open, to nodding off, to, to recognizing that they were nodding off and, and whining or crying a bit, and then eventually they'd, they'd close their eyes, put their head on my shoulder, and they'd accept what was happening. They'd snuggle in tight, and they'd fall asleep. Sometimes I think we approach our relationship with God that same way. God holds us. God walks with us. We, we fight it a bit. We, we might even push back. We might even cry. And eventually, we, we rest our heads on God's shoulder, accepting that we are loved. Friends, may we know that we are loved by Abba Father, that through the Spirit, we are adopted by Him, and that we are co-heirs with Christ. Amen. Amen.